Support comes from Adelaide Interiors. Their design team can expertly manage every detail of your renovation and remodeling project from start to finish. From bathrooms to kitchens, appliances, cabinets, countertops, flooring, and coverings. More at Adelaide.com. Support for The Zest comes from People's Gas, delivering clean, efficient, and affordable natural gas for cooking at home with precise temperature control. More at floridasenergy.com. And it's made like an, kind of like an espresso, but it's also sweetened. Like as it's coming out, it's like a really sweet, strong jolt of like pure coffee. It's the jet fuel that Miami runs on. I'm Delia Colon, and this is The Zest. Citrus, seafood, Spanish flavor, and Southern charm. The Zest celebrates cuisine and community in the Sunshine State. This week, we're off to South Florida for a chat with the Miami Herald's food and dining editor. Grab a cup of strong Cuban coffee and settle in for a conversation with Carlos Frias. If you want to get to Miami, you could head south on I-95. Or even faster, just go online and read the work of Carlos Frias. He's the Miami Herald's food and dining editor and a James Beard award-winning writer. I'd argue that Carlos could also add travel agent to his resume because his writing will transport you to Miami. He writes about the magic city like only a South Floridian could, from heartfelt stories about the intersection of food and immigration to the offbeat trend of eating iguana meat. And of course, coffee. I recently chatted with Carlos about all these topics and more. My name is Carlos Frias. I'm the food and dining editor at the Miami Herald. And uh, I come to the Herald from a long background as a former sports writer and features writer in another lifetime. Oh, that's so cool. And speaking of sports, when I Googled you, as I'm sure you know, you share a name with a professional baseball player from the Dominican Republic. So. How's that? Yeah, well, I was here first, okay? That's all I'm saying. I, was, <laughs> I had that handle first, but he is, you know, even though he's like uh, apparently not like a superstar, he is definitely still more famous than I am. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe you could team up and do like a line of stadium hot dogs together or something. I'm just Oh, my God. That would be genius. You can use that. That's all yours. That's free. So <laughs> tell me, how did you get into being the food writer? How did you become the food writer at the Miami Herald, taking a leap from the sports world? Well, some years back, I, I jumped from uh, writing just in-depth features of, about sports figures into writing uh, general features about uh, folks in the community. And I was writing at the Palm Beach Post at the time. And I was incredibly liberated, you know, to, to feel like I was telling stories of people who were not stars, but they deserved to be stars. They deserve more recognition than, you know, somebody because they could hit a baseball. And I just found it really rewarding. The feedback I got from writers was, um, it was, it was everything, you know, it was everything you want as a journalist to feel like you're tapped into the community. And I was fortunate enough to work with a, a really talented writer, a Pulitzer Prize winner, uh, Liz Balmaceda, who is the um, food editor at the Palm Beach Post. And she said, you know, you can tell really great stories through food. So I started doing that some years back, and I found it was another avenue to tell really great people's stories. And, you know, the way the world works, you know, Miami Herald had an opening and they said, how would you like to be the food editor? And I, and I said, I think that's a terrible idea. 
because I've never been uh, an editor, first of all, to begin with, and I never you know, had an entire food section. Um, but it really just became a platform to just kind of do everything related to food, an ability to kind of just look at all the news, everything that was happening in the world, and try to say, what's the food angle to this story? And it's been such fertile ground. Like, you know, I never, I never run out of things to write about. Yeah, I can imagine. So what are some stories over the years that didn't have an obvious food angle, but that did have to do with food or that did affect food in some way? Well, one that I thought of just right off the top of my head, you know, Florida has this phenomenon, which I'm sure that you're aware of, where anytime the temperature drops below like 50 degrees or so, our native invasive species, the green iguana, tends to freeze and fall out of trees. It rains iguanas in Florida. So around this time last year, I'd been kind of poking through Facebook because somebody mentioned it, that people were selling iguana meat online. And I just thought, this is an opportunity to write about something really bizarre, which is like this confluence of like something happening in Florida pop culture, which is, you know, our, our reign of iguanas and uh, the chicken of the trees, Um, And as you can imagine, people really responded with uh, very strong opinions. And, you know, so it's things like that. It's always looking for what's a little bit off kilter that's somehow related to food. And just just whether I want to nerd out about something, whether I'm just driving around town and ask the question, hey, what is it with that thing? And if it's got a food angle, I just try to satiate my own curiosity and, and hopefully it you know, it also kind of surprises and delights other folks too. Okay. I'm afraid to ask, but did you try the iguana meat? I did not try the iguana meat and not for, for, you know, squeamishness or what have you. It was like a month before, you know, COVID changed our lives and I just, we moved on to other things, but um, I would not be afraid to try it from, I understand it's it's a very, it's a multi-step process to get it to taste good. And that to me is always like, you know, there's other really great things that you can eat that require a little bit less work, <laughs> that right. are maybe just as good. I'm going to stick with that. Yeah, I'm with you. So you grew up in South Florida. Tell me about that. And what are some foods that remind you of childhood? Oh, man. Yeah, I grew up in, in um, uh, what was then Dade County, Miami-Dade County. Or rather, I was born here. But my parents, because of just circumstance, live just across the county line in Broward County. Now you're set in, um, you're in, in St. Pete, right? We're based in Tampa, but we, we love anything Florida related. I got you. Just Cause I, I'm trying to think of the difference between Dade and Broward is pretty vast and it's not quite, you know, like uh, crossing over from Hillsborough to Pasco County. Like, well, maybe it is. It's a, it's almost like the difference between Hillsborough and Citrus County. Like you go from an area that's very, mixed of Caribbean and Hispanic to one that's much more like white. And even though Broward County has like, you know, great little pockets of everything from Vietnamese to Jamaican and Haitian, um, but the counties are very different. So I grew up kind of on the other side of, of Broward and even though my family was here and, and it was like the three weekly trips that we took, you know, to Miami to visit family. Like I was, I always felt like I had reconnected with my roots. So when I write here, that's kind of what I always look out for is like, if I'm writing for a Miami audience, I want to write about things that are very Miami, right? Like things that you couldn't 
that you couldn't write about anywhere else in the world, yet somehow hopefully still translate like if you pick it up in Tampa or you know Los Angeles. It's something that feels uniquely Miami, but that hopefully folks can relate to. Like what? I think like Miami's coffee culture is really interesting. You know, like I think we all, you know, across the country have some, some form of, of love for coffee, whether as a country, in other words, and Miami's coffee culture is one of those things that's really unique. You know, like Miami has these little windows where folks will gather around and have Cuban coffee, which in and of itself is an amalgam, right? Like it's such like a, a multicultural creation. It's uh, as someone joked, it's Colombian coffee, often Colombian coffee brewed in an Italian machine by a, you know, a Cuban waitress, you know what I mean? <laughs> or a Cuban waiter. And it's made like an, kind of like an espresso, but it's also sweetened. Like as it's coming out, it's like a really sweet, strong jolt of like pure coffee. It's the jet fuel that Miami runs on. So it's one of those things that I just like, I feel is very unique to hear. And, and I try to find different ways to write about things that are unique. And, and that was one of them. Oh, I love that description. And even when I think of Miami food and drinks, I literally picture the little window where you get your coffee and your pasteles, just like you were talking about. And you even had a, a podcast series called La Ventanita, which I think is just brilliant. And Ventanita literally means little window in Spanish. Tell me about that. Sure. And like I said, I try to, try to root this kind of a one-off podcast in things that are very Miami. So what I did is I... I found like five of the greatest chefs in the country that had some ties to Miami, whether they were part-time residents here, whether they had restaurants here, uh, some had both, uh, some were born here. And I basically took these really highfalutin chefs, a box of Cuban pastries and a little colada of coffee to share. So over coffee and pastries, we recorded this, this series that was both video, podcast, and then I wrote a little story about our conversations and it just there were these conversations that really took off and they were really fun to have folks eat food that was homey, that was unfussy, uh, but was also very typical of a culture, right? And by a culture, I mean a Miami culture, not just a Cuban culture. And just letting that spark the conversations. And it was really, it was really great. It was one of the most, one of the more fun things I've done uh, in my time here. Oh, I wish I thought of that idea. <laughs> you had Listen, Michelle. Oh, we can go ahead. We can time again, man. If, uh, if I find the, the energy and the resources to try it again, you know, well, you know, I, I'd, love to, I'd love to take it to Tampa and we do it there. Oh, bring it to Tampa. Just keep drinking that coffee and, and you will have the energy. You had Michelle Bernstein on. We had her on The Zest too. She's great. So what are some foods you talked about growing up and crossing the border between the two counties in South Florida? What are some foods that your family might have eaten during a holiday, let's say? Oh yeah, the holidays. The holidays in South Florida, I think are really, they're great because you see a confluence of all the cultures really kind of handing the baton off throughout December into January, right? So let's say it all starts off with Coquito. So in early December, folks start buying their supplies to make, it's kind of like a, like a milk punch, uh, let's call it like, a, like an eggnog that has a, a Puerto Rican background to it. So it's really like three different kinds of milk, you know, condensed milk, evaporated milk, and um, cream of coconut, and rum, lots of rum, and then like spices, so like nutmeg and cinnamon. So you get like this, um, 
this mix of this kind of these holiday flavors with something that's very tropical, right? Like the coconut with these kind of post Thanksgiving spices, you know, and then coquito transitions to like our Noche Buena. I'm sure your, your listeners will know that throughout Latin America, the day before Christmas is our big celebration day for Christmas Eve. We do uh, roasted pig. So we had to have, we have to have roast pork in some way. And usually that's got yuca with mojo, right? And it's got some kind of rice and bean collective. And then that transitions into the new year with a uh, soup jumu, you know, right? Like uh, the, the Asian independent soup, which is uh, kind of like a, this big soup with all, all different kinds of, um, you know, tubers and pumpkin and flavors that are uniquely Haitian, you know? And that month's period, you really get to see all the cultures in Miami shine a little bit. And it's, and it's really great. That is great. My husband's Puerto Rican, so I definitely know my way around a bottle of Coquito. That is some strong mm. stuff, but it's so, so good. <laughs> yes, ma'am. Well, let me tell you, right in the heart of Coquito season, somebody sent a note and said, hey, why don't you try this version of vegan Coquito? And much to the fright and dismay of, of my Puerto Rican colleagues, I was like, you know, let's give it a shot. Let's make some vegan Coquito without the milk. And we use kind of like essentially almond milk. You know, it's like an almond and cashew paste with water that kind of creates an almond milk. Mm -hmm. And it was not bad. So like, you know, the vegans can have their thing. <laughs> they can have nice things too. But I made it with um, kind of like, I did a little bit of research talking with folks about like, hey, what kind of rum do you guys use to make your Coquito? And Puerto Ricans are very obviously proud of, you know, the island creation. So they're like, it has to be Puerto Rican rum. And I know Bacardi is now brewed and distilled in Puerto Rico, but folks there love Don Q. Oh yeah, Don, Don Q. Don Q. So I made mine with Bacardi and Don Q was like, hey, that recipe looks really interesting. Uh, you should try it with the actual Puerto Rican rum. And they sent me some. And, <laughs> and uh, so next year, that, that'll definitely be, uh, that'll be a requirement. Oh, that's awesome. Or maybe even oat milk. Oat milk's a little thicker than almond milk. I could geek out on all the milk substitutes, but oh, yeah. that's not really why we're here. <laughs> so Mr. Fancy Pants, uh, James Beard Award winner, did that affect your work at all? Um, not at all. Um, because I, I always said that winning the James Beard Award didn't help me get the stories that I wrote to win the James Beard Award. The stories that, that went into that were a kid who was, who was born and raised in Miami to Italian and Indian parents who started an organic farm in a field behind an Episcopal church. Another one was kind of a, a profile on a local baker, a kid who basically lived in a tent on a farm before he started learning how to bake bread and he became maybe the best known baker in South Florida, Zach the Baker. Zach the Baker. Yeah, and, and, and his stuff is starting to be delivered in Southeast Florida, uh, but he won't let it go any further because he's like, you know, it diminishes the quality. So we're just going to do really good bread as far as we can send it and no further. So it's like those little stories like that, like really getting to know those Miami stories, like that doesn't really help get you in the door to tell those stories. You still just have to be humble and ask folks to, to trust you with telling their stories and, and listen more than you speak. And hopefully those stories, you know, they, they filter through you and, and go into the world and, and hopefully paint a, a better picture of, of my city. Well, congratulations on that. It's, that's amazing. 
You mentioned in the beginning that food stories are about so much more than just the food. Food is like a vehicle for telling stories. And I was poking around on your social media and you talk a lot about non-food issues. You dip a toe into politics and social justice. So do you see those as related to food in any way? Yeah, absolutely. I think that you know, we can't divorce the fact that, you know, food isn't made by robots in a factory, you know, it's made by, by people who've had their own life experiences, bring them in some way to create food. And we can't pretend like, you know, there aren't human beings behind that, that have opinions. So like, we can't pretend that behind all the fanciest restaurants in South Florida, and you know, really anywhere, that it's not immigrants who are sometimes here, you know, fresh off the boat, so to speak, uh, learning a language for the first time, who are doing the bulk of the work, who are doing really the, the hot, sweaty labor. Why is that relevant? Because the person who employs them has to be aware of that, right? And that should affect that person's ethos. One way or another, it's going to affect their ethos. And diners can't be so removed from understanding, you know, what goes into bringing that beautiful, perfect plate, you know, to them. So I think that everybody who touches the food at some point has a view on politics, on immigration, on race, culture. And when you tell those people stories, you learn a little bit more about what your community is about. And I think as, as journalists, that's what we try to do is, is we just try to listen to people. It's funny because people think that journalists have all these opinions because of stories we write. And it's really the opinion, we're, we're kind of acting as a, a vehicle for for people to tell their own stories. Certainly we have our own opinions and what have you related to everything, but the goal is to get the voices of as many folks as we can in the areas that we cover spread wide enough so that we really understand that most issues are complex. Most issues are not black and white. And, uh, and food is a vehicle to tell those. For sure. So what are some stories or some things in the food world that you're excited about or that you think haven't gotten enough attention? I can talk about Miami a little bit. You know, Miami has changed. Uh, Miami continues to change. Any big city makes and remakes itself over and over with, with generations, you know, and I'm always interested in the next, um, the next group of people that are, that are adding to the community or changing it, you know, and in Miami, it's like, you know, in the last 10 years, we've seen like a surge of, of Peruvian restaurants because Peruvians were leaving their country looking for economic viability in, in another place, you know? And, and so we see, you know, this huge explosion of Peruvian food in Miami. And then you see a mix of Peruvian food involving itself with the food that was here already. And then who's next, you know, like we don't have um, Salvadorian pupusa stands, but I met one couple who like, they kind of have like this side idea to maybe start, just doing a pupusa stand the way that you would have like a taco stand. And so those are the things that I'm excited about is just kind of paying attention to folks who are trying something new because that's really how you kind of are able to trace how a city is changing, you know? Yeah, that's very cool. You're right. It's about so much more than just the food. I have to get you to weigh in on the, the great debate of our time. Where was the Cuban sandwich born? Tampa or Miami? Woo! Wow, you really went there with me, huh? Okay. <laughs> uh, you know what? 
Tampa Bay's makes a really strong claim for the Cuban sandwich. And I, I know a former uh, Tampa food writer, Jeff Houck, um, who now yep. works for, for uh, La Columbia uh, restaurant. Sure. Um, Jeff's a friend of the podcast. Oh, good, good. Well, him, I, I trust, you know, I trust with the, with the truth. So I think Tampa has a good claim on it. I will say this, though. I will say this. It strikes me as, as a little bit arrogant. Bear with me. It strikes me as a little bit arrogant for Tampa to claim that someone in Cuba, an actual Cuban, didn't take Cuban bread, roasted pork, which was plentiful, ham and cheese, and make a sandwich out of it first. So my, my guess, without any fact, is that more than likely, Cubans are the ones who came up with a Cuban sandwich. Now, did Tampa give it that name uh, and maybe put some salami in there? Uh, that's possible. I'm, I'm willing to concede that. And I'm willing to concede that they, uh, that they predate Miami. I'm not a, a, such an, a, a loyalist, such a regionalist to say that, uh, that Miami is the center of the universe. Uh, but I think let's have, let's have Cubans have the Cuban sandwich and let's have Tampa say that they were the ones to give it that name. So that's where I stand on that one. <laughs> For the record. Okay, well, we can agree to disagree. <laughs> we've had, we've had uh, Andrea Gonsmart-Williams from the Columbia Restaurant on the podcast. She was actually our first guest in episode oh, cool. one. So that's where my loyalty lies, but I that's appreciate fine. your perspective. And <laughs> <laughs> Carlos Frias, it was so nice to talk to you. I'm going to have to go back and listen to all your wonderful Ventanita podcast episodes. And if you do decide to move forward with the stadium hot dog idea, give us a shout out. For sure. For sure. I'll, I'll call one the zest dog for sure. <laughs> <laughs> we would love that. Well, thank you so much. It was, it was really nice to talk to you. Nice talking to you, Delia. Carlos Frias is the Miami Herald's food and dining editor, a James Beard Award winner, and the guy behind the fantastic 2019 podcast series La Ventanita, which we've linked to in the show notes. He's also the author of Take Me With You, A Secret Search for Family in a Forbidden Cuba. Now, some of the folks Carlos mentioned in our interview have also been featured on The Zest, like Chef Michelle Bernstein and Cuban Sandwich Authority Jeff Hauk. If you'd like to do a deep dive on either of them, just head over to our website, thezestpodcast.com. I'm Delia Colon. I produce The Zest with help from Cheyenne Jaglau and Mark Hayes. Copyright 2021, WUSF Public Media. (laughs) 